good morning. I have the privilege this morning of kind of picking up where Dave left off, left off with us last week as we kind of dive in and get familiar with this letter from Paul to the Colossian church. A couple of summers ago, as some of you may remember, uh, I had the opportunity to spend a couple of weeks in Iceland. And there's a couple of things that I kind of learned on that trip that I found particularly interesting. And they're actually relevant to our discussion today that I'd like to share. The first one is the percentage of people in Iceland who identify as atheist is one of the highest such percentages in the world. And yet, there is an old rule in Iceland uh, that says that every town, regardless of size, must have a church. And so as you travel across the countryside, you'll travel through several small towns. Some of them maybe only have a dozen or so homes. And typically perched on the hillside, you'll see a building that clearly uh, is the church for that town. So despite the atheist uh, environment, there's churches everywhere. I bring up this story because this idea of tiny churches in tiny towns and surrounded by people who don't believe the same things is a lot like our church at Colossae. If you read the bulletin, there's a little write-up in there that says that that church may have consisted of as many as just a few households. And just like those tiny churches in the atheist country of Iceland, uh, Colossae was placed within a culture that didn't buy into its message. As Dave shared with us, paganism and Judaism would be the dominant religions in Colossae. So that creates an environment for a small Christian church that's going to be difficult for them to grow in their faith and thrive as a community. So facing these difficulties of being such a small church in a small town and against competing religions, we wouldn't really expect that the Colossian church would draw a lot of attention from those outside of their community. But obviously they did. And they drew attention from the Apostle Paul himself, who as we know is one of the most prominent leaders in the first century Christian church. So Paul receives news of the Colossian church from a man named Epaphras. We see that in our passage for today. And he responds by writing this letter. And this is a letter that offers both praise, encouragement, and as we'll see further on in this series, instruction and guidance to this Colossian church. But our passage today is going to be focused on those first two things, praise and encouragement. And these praises which Paul offers, I think can actually give us a little bit of insight into what, in Paul's mind, made for a good church community. Which is kind of an interesting question to ponder. I think in our world today, if we ask the question, how does one identify a good church, a lot of times the discussion inevitably goes to something involving numbers. How many people attend the church? How many ministry programs does the church have? What's the overall state of the church finances? What does that look like? I don't think any of these things, attendance or ministry programs or finances, are bad things. But as I read through the New Testament, especially through the letters of Paul, I don't see anything that's really focused on these things alone that says these are what the church should really focus on. Let's look at a few examples. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Paul doesn't write to them about their growth in attendance or their growth in giving, but he does write to them about their growth of divisions, jealousy, quarreling, immoral behavior, and arrogance among them. Similarly, if you read Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, Paul doesn't mention how quickly they have grown their membership, grown their number of ministry programs, or met their financial goals. But Paul does mention how quickly they have deserted God in their lives. 
And of course, in the book of Revelation, we have the, the letters to the seven churches. And one of those is a letter to the church at Ephesus, which is particularly relevant because Ephesus was probably one of the largest Christian communities in the first century. And this letter to the church at Ephesus commends them for their perseverance and their endurance. Yet at the same time, it notes how they had lost the love for God that they had once had. So I think these examples show us all these churches that would be much larger churches in the community of Colossae, that church health is not just about numbers. So as we dive into this passage of praise and encouragement from Paul this morning, I think we're going to find some, church, some traits that we, both as individuals and as the church body, can try to emulate in our lives. So with that in mind, let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word has been preserved for us for thousands of years so that we can read and understand your message to us and so that we can see examples, both good and bad, of how the predecessors of our faith have obeyed and followed you. Help us this morning to understand your word given through Paul's words to the Colossian church. Amen. Now hear God's word from Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. As I already mentioned, you can kind of imagine that for such a small church to receive a letter from a prominent leader like Paul, would have been pretty surprising to them. N.T. Wright, who in the current world is perhaps one of the foremost uh, scholars on those letters to the Colossians, he characterizes the Colossian church not just as small as we already have, but also as a young church who was discovering what it really meant to believe in Jesus Christ and to follow him with their lives. He says that this Colossian church would have been a church community who was eager for encouragement and instruction from someone that they trusted, someone like Paul. And that this would be especially true in light of the pressures that they faced from the pagan and Jewish communities around them, trying to convince them that they needed to add something to their faith in order to make it complete. And then Paul, of course, with this letter, he provides that exact encouragement and instruction that this community is looking for. And so this morning we picked up the letter in verse 3 with Paul's expression of thanksgiving for this community when he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This kind of statement of thanksgiving is fairly typical in Paul's letters, which I think sometimes leads us to overlook it as we read through. But we need to remember what this church was looking for. They were looking for praise and encouragement, that they were indeed doing the right things. And I think that they found them in these very words from verse 3. Given the challenges that they faced from these other communities with the pagans and the Jews, they no doubt would have found the encouragement they were looking for 
in the words that Paul said, we always thank God when we pray for you. Now, as a side note, I think we can learn a little bit about how we pray for others with what Paul says here. When I pray for others, it tends to be intercessory prayers, where I identify what I think that person's needs may be and pray specifically to those needs. But Paul's offering a different sort of prayer here, a prayer of thankfulness. So as he offers this prayer of thankfulness, he's taking the pressure off of himself and what he thinks the needs are of this community, and he puts the focus on God and how God is already at work in their lives. And so when we pray for others, maybe we not forget to thank God for how he is at work around us rather than just focusing on what we think he should be doing. That's just a side conversation. <laughs> Moving into verse 4, Paul writes that he has heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of, the lo- of their love for all of God's people. So what we can learn from this is that this is a church that is bearing fruit, and they are living in accordance with their faith. And this is another source uh, for which Paul recognizes and praises their actions. I think it's safe to say that the Colossian church most definitely was not a perfect church body. No church, of course, ever has been, and no church ever will be. And as we go through this letter, we'll see that Paul was going to be soon be offering them warnings about the culture in which they live and instruction for things that they need to do to protect themselves and protect their faith. But before he does that, he takes this moment to offer them encouragement with these words, letting them know, I know how you've been living. I do not doubt your faith. I do not doubt that you are living with the same gospel message that you have received. And so he kind of sets the stage for them to say, you've been doing things well. But as we go throughout this letter, we're going to have some warnings for you, but please do not be discouraged. Reading a little bit further, Paul praises and encourages the Colossian church, not just for what they do or how they act, but why they do it. So we read in the verse 5, Paul says that he knows the Colossians' faith and love springs up from the hope that they have stored up for them in heaven, and that this is the same hope that they had when they first heard the gospel. So what we can see in verse 5 is that the motivations behind the faith and love that we show is just as important as the fact that we show it. I think we probably all know many today who do good works, maybe for the sake of the good works themselves, or some people want to bring attention to themselves to gain favor and praise among their, their peers. But as Christians, our good works that we are to perform are not to be selfishly motivated, but they are to be rooted and spring up from us because of the hope that we have in the gospel. And of course, as Dave alluded to last week, a hope centered on the gospel is really a hope that's centered on the person of Jesus. And so this hope of the Colossian church and the environment that they were in, it's not rooted in trying to appease the false pagan gods in order to gain their favor. Their hope wasn't based on the Colossians' own self or perceived self-righteousness and their, self, their perceived ability to keep the Jewish law and thinking that they themselves could earn God's favor. Now, this church community was focused on the gospel and on the person of Jesus. And, of course, Paul, hearing this report of their faith, is thankful for that faith, their love, and this loyalty they're showing to Jesus and the gospel. And so if we put verses 4 and 5 together, 
What we really see is that when we live with Christ as our focus, or Christ at the center, that's Dave's title, but I'm going to adopt it as well, faith and love are indeed visible in our lives. Faith and love are not just feelings, beliefs, or ideas, but they are also actions. And we see this throughout the New Testament. John 13, 35, Jesus says to his disciples, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Paul writes about the importance of love in 1 Corinthians 13, no surprise, noting that even if he was to perform great works, if he does so without love, then all of those works that he does are worth nothing. In his first letter, John writes about the idea of love, stating, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Later in that same letter, John writes, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So as we look at all these scriptures, they reveal really kind of the same thing. It's not enough for us to just believe, to just say that we have faith. We are called to act out our faith and show that with our love that we have for others. And verse 6 tells us why. We read from Paul here that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So the people of the church at Colossae, they had heard the gospel. They had understood God's grace, and they had responded, as we had said, by responding, by acting out in faith and love. And so their knowledge of the gospel led them to bear fruit with their lives. And it is, as Paul says here, the gospel itself bearing fruit through God's people acting out in faith and love that results in the gospel spreading and growing the church. And so this tells us that we are to share our faith with others, not just through our words, but through our deeds as well. Jesus talks about this in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so through our acts of love, Jesus says, we will bring others to glorify God or bring others into the gospel. As we move into verse 7, we are introduced to a man named Epaphras. Paul describes him as our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And throughout the entire New Testament, Epaphras is mentioned three times. We have once here in Colossians 1. We have a second time later in Colossians and then the third time occurs in Paul's letter to Philemon, who coincidentally uh, was likely a member of this Colossian church. So what we know about, his, about Epaphras mostly comes from verses 7 and 8 here. He was apparently responsible for bringing the gospel to the Colossians, and he was also responsible for bringing a good report of their faith back to Paul. And that's what inspired this letter. So really, other than that, we don't know much of anything about Epaphras. We don't know how he became a follower of Jesus. We don't know whether he was a gifted teacher or speaker. Honestly, we don't even know whether he could read and write. But in a way, those things don't matter. 
Paul's not interested in what qualified Epaphras to do his work, more that Epaphras, in fact, did do the work that he was called to do. And I think that we as a church today can take an important lesson from this. I think we tend to get stuck on the things that we don't know, the things that we haven't done or experienced in our lives. And when we do that, we place limits on what we think we're capable of doing for God's kingdom. We think that we can't possibly do much to spread the gospel because we don't have the proper qualifications, is another way to put that. Or maybe we have parts of our lives, things we've done, decisions we've made that we regret, that we think disqualify us from being used by God for his purposes. But I don't see that as I look through the Bible. As I look through the Bible, there's a whole list of people that serve as proof that in God's kingdom, it's not about what we bring to the relationship, but really about our obedience to God's plan. Here's just a few biblical characters and their faults. Abraham was too old to have a son and give rise to a nation. Jacob was a deceiver. Joseph spent time in prison. Moses had difficulty with his speech. Gideon was afraid of his enemies. Rahab was a prostitute. Naomi was a poor widow. David had an affair and his friend killed. Jonah ran away from God. Martha was more worried about getting her chores completed than spending time with her Lord. The Samaritan woman at the well, she was divorced several times. The disciples fell asleep while standing watch for Jesus. Peter denied Christ three times. Paul killed many early Christians. Timothy was frequently sick. And of course, Lazarus was dead. So all of these people had their own faults, their own limitations. But that didn't matter, because God ended up using them anyway. God worked in them and through them to bring about his purposes and would not let their shortcomings get in the way. So as we go back to this person of Epaphras, as I said, we don't know much about him. He may not have had any special skills or training, but God used him to reach the church at Colossae anyway. And Epaphras' faithfulness to that call from God is preserved in this letter. And this letter, of course, has been a source of hope to our Christian community for 2,000 years. Epaphras probably never imagined that. Kind of in the same way, the Colossian church they probably thought they weren't going to impact a lot of people. They're a small community. How many nations and tribes and tongues could they possibly reach on their own? It's likely they probably weren't doing anything particularly notable in their showing love and faith. It was probably in simple ways. The ways that they treated other people, both inside and outside of their community of faith, on a daily basis. How could they have perceived that God would preserve their story so that thousands of years later and many, many generations later, people would read it and be encouraged? So as we seek to apply this passage to our lives, I think we should each take a moment to consider whether we trust more in ourselves and our abilities or whether we trust more in God's good and perfect plan for our lives. I'm quite confident that all of us can list our own faults and shortcomings. But God can, and he will, use us in spite of those. All that we have to do is step out in faith and obedience.
Sometimes we don't know where to start. But I think that the Colossian church, as we get this little bit of information from them, from our passage today, gives us a good example. Just start in the simple ways. Start by showing your love and faith to those around you. So let's hold fast to the hope that we have in our ultimate fate in heaven, which is, of course, anchored in the person of Christ. And let's act out our faith and love toward others, even if it's just in simple ways. And let's not place limits on what God is going to do through us in our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have preserved this letter to the church at Colossae to provide encouragement to your people, so many of whom face challenges to their faith every day, and so many of whom underestimate the work that you have planned to do in them and through them. Open our eyes and our minds so that we can see and understand that spreading the gospel is not about us or our abilities, but it's about you, your plans, and us being willing to follow. Amen.